Welcome. This episode of Inside the Genome is a recent recording of Myriad Oncology Live, a webinar hosted by me, Dr. Thomas Slavin, Senior Vice President of Medical Affairs at Myriad Oncology. The opinions and views expressed in this recording do not necessarily represent those of Myriad Genetics or its affiliates. To participate in a future recording, please visit Myriad Oncology for a list of dates, times, and subjects. I look forward to exploring the world of genetics with you all. Okay, hello everyone and welcome to Mirror Oncology Live. Um, I, we have a, a fun show today. Uh, we're joined by two special guests. I'll introduce them in a second. Uh, a little housekeeping to start as always. Uh, so this is Mirror Oncology Live. If this is your first time here, you just know that you can ask literally anything you want. Um, you know, we do these uh, theme-based, but they are an open-door discussion to, you know, the medical affairs team at, at uh, Myriad, um, you know, anything that's really on your mind. Uh, today, we're talking about uh, cancer survivorship. However, if you, you know, have a burning question about polygenic risk score and missed out last week or something, and you want to really just, uh, you know, get addressed, that's fine. We can work it in towards the end. Uh, just let us know. Uh, we are, uh, as of uh, a few weeks ago, we did start recording these just because we have so many people that uh, want to come on, um, but can't make the times. Um, uh, what we're doing with them is uh, not showing the video, though, we're just showing we're just uh, uploading the audio. Um, and we're putting it uh, here. And I'll, I'll show everyone because uh, we've been pretty active in this space. Um, so this is the inside the genome podcast, which uh, I run and uh, Shelly helps me with as well. And, uh, and A, it's a good podcast. It's the only podcast on cancer genomics. So uh, definitely check it out if you have not. Um, these are all about 15 minute um, uh, you know, sec, uh, talks. Uh, you'll see here, uh, I did one uh, with Annie Parker, who's on today. Um, and uh, uh, so that if you, you know, either miss today or have to jump off early or something, there's already that podcast. And then what we've been doing with the Myriad Oncology Lies, and I forgot to mention this, but we probably need to define this a little bit better because no one's going to know what MOL means. But essentially, these are uh, uh, and now where any of the ones that say MOL or the Myriad Oncology Lives. So those are just the debrief, you know, that's just the recorded audio from these um, uh, webinars uh, weekly. So you know, these are about 45 minutes, uh, whereas the regular podcasts are about 15 minutes. So uh, we clearly have some cleanup to do yet. Uh, so I'm just letting people know, you know, how, how this is shaping up at the moment. Uh, but hopefully we can clean it up a little bit more as we go forward. Um, so today we're talking about cancer survivorship. Um, and then we have a bit of a break. Uh, and then we're going to come back uh, in mid-July, uh, just because I know a lot of people are you know, taking vacation and, and different things. Kids are out of school, um, or at least not having to sit in front of virtual Zoom classrooms anymore. Uh, but uh, we'll come back with uh, rare hereditary cancer genes. I'm also building out uh, into August. Uh, we already have some uh, topics planned, but if there's anything that, you know, you really wanna hear a topic on, uh, you know, let either me know, let Shelly know. Uh, Shelly's also uh, gonna be um, running the chat today, so, you know, definitely unmute yourself, ask any questions that you want. Uh, but uh, if you'd rather just send a question, you know, you can send it to the chat or you can send it to Shelly, who will also make sure it gets addressed. Okay, so without further ado, I'll uh, introduce our two guests. So we have uh, 
uh, Annie Parker, who I already brought up a little bit. And, you know, I won't do too much of an introduction. I'll, you know, we'll, we'll definitely, uh, you know, let you get into your, um, you know, kind of stories and how you came to being on the podcast today. And then um, we are also joined uh, by uh, Lori McCaskill. Um, and they are both uh, cancer survivors. Uh, Annie has had uh, uh, multiple uh, and is also a BRCA1 carrier. And uh, Lori uh, has uh, uh, made it through pancreatic cancer, which, uh, you know, as uh, many of you know, few people can say that. And uh, she's many years out. So it's uh, great. And, uh, you know, I think just having them on and, um, you know, listening to, uh, you know, their perspective and what they're doing uh, in the advocacy realm is is, uh, you know, just nice for all of us to hear. I mean, you know, this is why we're doing what we're doing. I mean, we're either, you know, if you're listening to this, you're either probably involved in some way, shape or form of uh, trying to keep people cancer free, trying to prevent second cancers on the hereditary side, trying to treat cancers in some way, shape or form. So, you know, we're all a team and it's nice to, you know, have the people that have really gone through it. And, you know, some, some of you out there have also gone through cancer and you're, you know, part of the treatment, but, it, um, you know, it's nice to have perspectives uh, from multiple people. So let me, uh, you know, I, I didn't really, you know, have a great way to, you know, kind of introduce people, but I would like to uh, hear from, um, you know, Annie and Lori, uh, just, you know, kind of how they, they, you know, got here today, essentially, and, you know, uh, you know, where, where things are going, but really, I think, you know, to start maybe a little bit of background. So, um, you know, I guess I could probably coin flip here. All right. <laughs> so it's heads. So I had heads as Annie. So <laughs> we'll start with Annie. Um, Annie, are you, um, are you available? I haven't, feel free to unmute yourself. And if not, that's okay. Um, she might be um, busy. I see Lori is already unmuted. So early bird gets the worm, Lori. So <laughs> do you want to, um, you know, tell people a little bit about yourself and then we'll see if uh, Annie can uh, fix her audio, hopefully. I am so happy to be here celebrating Cancer Survivor Month for everyone out there. But I'm especially happy to be able to for myself. Uh, this month I celebrate 15 years of pancreatic cancer and almost one year for endometrial cancer. I was diagnosed last year during COVID and oh. had surgery for that. But as we know, um, I've learned so much about uh, the world of cancer and, and uh, genetic testing. I was 55 years old, perfectly healthy. Uh, exercise enthusiast. I'm diligent about my t checkups. I've, other than a cold and the flu, I've never been sick. And it was a backache. And for those of you out there, please don't think because you have a backache, you're going to get pancreatic cancer. But I really encourage everyone to learn and understand what the symptoms are of pancreatic cancer. Because as you know, Dr. Slavin, that you do not have the luxury of time. Mm -hmm. And it's really because I use my voice. I was persistent thinking I just needed an antibiotic, but I never once thought cancer. So years of chemotherapy, almost four years and multiple surgeries, and I was told to get my affairs in order, you have three to six months to live. Well, that was 11 years ago, and I'm very happy to be here cancer-free and, and celebrating life. 
and through my uh, intuitive skills and uh, really expertise and cancer journey, I now guide and coach others on how to navigate a challenging journey and how to really uh, take charge and be empowered interacting with healthcare professionals, with family members, and just really not only thrive, but survive this, this challenging journey. And yeah, I'm an so happy to be able to collaborate with Myriad because I've learned a great deal in, in the world of genetic testing and how you all really are the gold standard and the importance of genetic testing. So it's, uh, it's an honor to be here. Yeah, no, thank you so much for coming. I didn't know you had endometrial cancer too. I wow. did. That's, that's amazing. I did. Yeah. What, what kind of... Um, uh, pancreatic cancer did you have? Did you have um, agent carcinoma? It yeah, was it, and and Dr. Slavin, I was I was fortunate in that it had not spread to my liver. It had spread, mm -hmm. and I was advised to start on chemotherapy and not have the Whipple surgery. Unfortunately, uh, complications thwarted that, and against some doctor's advice, I did have the Whipple, and I'm so glad I did. Complicated surgery, as you know, and and uh, recovery was was difficult, but I, I believe the most important thing is certainly in addition to going to a centers of excellence and, and uh, interacting with the best healthcare professionals is your mindset. And I, I just never really focus that I have cancer. I could be dying. All of the statistics are against me. I really thought I'm going to fight this fight. I'm going to be my own person. I wanted to kind of practice a, a, an artful or healthy denial. I never asked how long am I going to be on this chemo or what is my prognosis? And that worked for me. And it was taking baby steps and really believing in myself and trying to live a quality of life. Obviously, it's altered and it's completely different, but, but really taking that step and never, ever giving up. And I believe that's so possible for everybody out there. Yeah. And when, so, you know, here you are, you're 55, you know, you, I'm assuming you went into an emergency room or something with some, you know, your back pain or, you know, I don't, I, I mean, how did, you know, if you go back in time, you know, you were getting your evaluation and, you know, kind of like, when did you first hear that word? You know, no, I actually I, I will correct that because it was a consistent back pain. I experienced mm -hmm. something almost as if being I've never been electrocuted, but it sort of felt like that. I had this incredible pain starting at the top of my head mm -hmm. that went through my entire body for only about five or seven seconds. But what was one time? One time only. And it was just as if I was on fire. It took my breath away. I almost passed out. Hmm. And what remained was a pain in my lower back on one side about the size of a tennis ball. And this was consistent. It never, ever subsided. Sometimes it was so debilitating, I could hardly get out of bed. Most of the time, it was just annoying. And I remember the next day I was race walking with some girlfriends and we go pretty fast. I was in New York at the time and they said, oh, the pain is probably from your heels you wore at the party last night. You know, we just yeah. attribute it to something that is something else other than being sick. 
Days later, when I returned to my home in Los Angeles, I didn't even know what kind of a doctor to go to. And I went through a variety of doctors and everyone dismissed me. No, you pulled a muscle exercising. It's your imagination. So you did, you did see some doctors that, yeah. just yeah, Oh, I saw many doctors for months. Yeah. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. And x-rays were taken and I kept begging for tests or something. I need an antibiotic. What's wrong? This back pain never goes away. And finally, I asked for a scan. I'd never had one. So I didn't know what I was asking for. Is it an MRI? Is it a scan? What kind so of- So you felt like you were having to advocate for yourself. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I want people to know is use your voice because sometimes we're overlooked. When they told me, Lori, it's your imagination, nothing's wrong. I am a reasonable patient and there was a pain and I was experiencing something very, very uncomfortable. Yeah. Did you have anything else going on? Like, were you not eating a lot or no. I mean, sleeping I, okay? I and I, I've okay. always been petite. I lost a little bit of weight. And then finally, mm -hmm. after they did the endoscopy and biopsy, and when they said, Lori, I am so sorry of pancreatic cancer. I literally said to the doctor, that is a death sentence. You have the wrong file. Would you please get the right file? Honestly, I was yeah. in complete disbelief. And I barely knew what the pancreas did. I was uh, very naive and not educated in, in that department. And uh, as I said, quickly started on, a, 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 well, let me back up. The most important step I believe after a diagnosis is getting a plan in place. And I was fortunate to be surrounded by a lot of loving friends, providing resources, found an oncologist and started immediately on a pill form of uh, chemotherapy. Oh, before even having the pancreatic surgery and everything? Yes, oh yes. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah. Because that was pretty rare uh, back 11, 15, you know, 15, 15 years, years ago, ago yeah. 2006, yeah. yes. You know, adjuvant yeah. therapy, yeah. Yes. So was. then, um, so you had then, and then, so you were on the, the therapy for a while and then you had your surgery and, and had it removed. Um, you know, what, what were those kind of feelings when you, I mean, had it removed? Were you just thinking, you know, I'm, I'm done with this or were you just, uh, it sounds like you're a very positive person. I mean, were you, yeah. Just... I am, but I was, I had never been in the hospital and this was all, it happened quickly, uh, but the therapy of the chemotherapy on the pill was thwarted because my uh, liver was being crushed and they put in stents and I had to have two back-to-back -back surgeries and never left the hospital and followed up with the Whipple. And honestly, I, I believe that I was in this complete state of shock, which I know every cancer patient out there can, can relate to. It was disbelief. I really didn't know what was happening. I was in a lot of pain. And I believe the most important thing at that time was I really believed and trusted in my doctors. I didn't have a long relationship with them. I had just met the surgeon. I had just met the oncologist. But I had faith in that I knew that they were there for me and that this was the best decision that I could make. I did some research, should I be in another hospital somewhere else and so forth, and all of that was done very quickly. But I had that faith in them and in myself that I would come through this, not knowing that it would be years of this protocol and this, this type of, um, 
well, therapy. That yeah, we, you're probably just thinking of it in the moment. You're probably not thinking right. about the exactly. yeah, all that's in front of you. Yeah. And again, so on day six, they told me I would be in the hospital for two weeks. As you know, recovering from the Whipple surgery is, is complex and, and challenging. Yeah. And my surgery. And for those that we should probably, I don't, I, probably most people know what a Whipple is, but essentially it's a pancreatic duodectomy. I mean, it's uh, you take your pancreas out with uh, most of the duodenum. There's a lot of kind of replumbing, you know, that goes on as part of it. But yeah, usually you're left with a standard Whipple with no pancreas at that point. Right. I do have part of my, my pancreas, fortunately, so I'm not a diabetic. And they say it's the most complicated abdominal surgery. And literally day, the second day after, after the surgery, I was up walking, walking, shuffling the hospital floors five times a day attached to machines. But I was so bored. I couldn't just lie in that bed. I'd never been in the hospital, as I mentioned. I couldn't focus. I loved to read. It was just unlike anything I'd ever experienced. Mm -hmm. So it was getting that mindset going. And I just thought, this is going to distract me. This is going to occupy the time. And I did that every day. And then on day six, my adorable surgeon comes in in this starch coat and he looks at me and he, he said, I just don't believe this, Lori. I guess this is what my wife does, but I've never seen it done in the hospital. And I had a manicurist and a pedicurist. They were in white coats giving me the manicure and the pedicure. And I looked at him and I said, one more day here and it's going to be the hairdresser. And I was <laughs> able to check out the next day. But again, that was really trying to live my life as normally as possible in completely different circumstances. Yeah, and, and that was a, a thought of my, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say the self-care is so important yeah. for every patient. Well, that's what I was wondering. I mean, you know, it's not like you were just waiting around for cancer to come. So you had a, you had a whole life, obviously, you know, going on that just stopped uh, for the most part, probably. So how did that, I mean, how did you work through all that? And I see a question by um, Robin uh, Palmer in the chat about, you know, how did you tell your friends and, you know, family and, you know, even, you know, broach those subjects? It was very difficult. And uh, everyone was, of course, in complete shock, because I'm the one that I can't eat enough green vegetables. And I love exercise. And I'm incredibly healthy. And they would say, Oh, my gosh, if Lori got this, what's gonna happen to us. But it was uh, after a while, you learn to manage those conversations. And boundaries are really important because it's overwhelming. Everyone is coming from love, wanting to help you. You've got to go here, you need to do this. And I think managing all of that is so important. I took really good notes. That record keeping was another element in my managing this journey and saving my life. And I just wrote everything down and I didn't respond or react to everything right away. And I was very open with my friends about what I wanted to talk about or what I could hear or not hear. I didn't want them to ask me, well, what's next? Or what do they say? What's the prognosis? Or I, I didn't want to go down that road because I myself really in many ways didn't want to know. Yeah. I wanted just to know what's the next day, baby steps. That's all I could handle. And that really worked well for me. 
And again, Dr. Slavin, it was just living my life as normally as possible. I lived in Colorado part-time and in, in California. And my oncologist was fantastic because he let me, um, I was able to have my treatments up in the mountains and I was able to manage the altitude and ride my bike. And even though I didn't have my hair, I had my bike helmet and I was able to give myself infusions. I mean, it was just a way of managing it that I stepped outside of the box, but I did it carefully. I did it responsibly. And I believe that I really was adding another dimension to my life while I was being told I probably won't like make it. I have months to live. Yeah, yeah. That, and, so, Lori, I have a yeah. question. Um, I think your your story is absolutely inspirational because you you don't hear those stories and that num those number of years typically after somebody's been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and so it's truly inspirational to hear this. And I'm very curious how you managed the negative side that might have been presented to you, like oh my gosh, this is not how this normally works. And um, the psychological aspect of that, because you're proving a lot of um, beliefs that are wrong. Um, right. And I'd like to hear more about that. I, in my interactions with my oncologist, I never asked, what do you think my, the prognosis is? How long am I gonna be on this drug? What, what should I expect next? Because honestly, Shelley, I didn't want to know. Again, I just took it a day at a time. It was, you could call it a healthy denial. I normally like to get the answer. I wanna be informed. I was married at the time and my husband did the research. I did not wanna read the statistics I started. They were grim, they were negative. That did not serve me well at the time. And I really just thought that I'm gonna manage whatever that day brought for me. So when I would go to my chemo treatments, I would take a, a large satchel of all my newspapers and my magazines and my computer and my iPad. And sometimes I couldn't read any of it. All I could do was lie down because I didn't feel well. I was in pain. Uh, I was fatigued. And other times I would charge through. I learned how to manage the sessions afterwards and the side effects. So I knew for a day or a day and a half or two, I felt fine. So I would travel, I would organize my meetings. Again, try to live my life as normally as possible and put this in the back of my mind. I didn't focus on it. And that doesn't mean that there weren't the horrible side effects and I wasn't in pain and I wasn't scared. I would um, pray, I was uh, spiritual. I would keep a gratitude journal. I didn't call it that at the time. I just started writing down simple little entries. Shelley called me today, I had the best conversation. I love the view from my bedroom window. I was able to take a nap for the first time uninterrupted for two hours. And then at the end of the week, I would reread all of these entries and they, they just, they made me smile. They made me cry. They made me remember all those little things that in my normal life, I appreciated, but honestly, not to the depth and the level that I did at this point. And that was a whole new landscape. I mean, a, a palette of colors just came alive that I, I really appreciated later, not at the time, because I was only trying to survive the next hour, get through yeah. the day. 
Yeah, no, that's incredible. <clears throat> and and I do want to. Um, uh, I'd like to go to Anne, uh, Annie Parker, a little bit, and then um, let Annie tell her journey a bit, and then we'll. And then yeah, I think you know. I, I don't know if you two have ever met each other, uh, but yeah. no, we have yeah. not. Yeah. I'm so honored to meet you, Anne. Yeah, and, and you, Lori. I I am just sitting here. We have so many differences to our story, but we also have a lot of similarities and just bringing me to tears, honestly. Um, Thank you. So inspirational, as Shelly said, and, and what an incredible lady. Thank you. Well, your story is amazing and I can't wait to hear from you. So please share. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Annie. I mean, if you want to uh, let the audience know, just, uh, you know, and, and the audience is largely a provider audience. I mean, people taking care of people with cancer. So, um, but, uh, you know, some may, may know of you, uh, but probably many do not yet. So if you want to give people a little rundown of, you know, how you uh, came to be sure. being here. Be yes. Yeah. Yes. And thank you very much, Dr. Sleeman, to have, oh, yeah. have no, me back pleasure, again. Yeah. It's just so wonderful. So um, I often say and often felt that I had cancer um, even before I was born because my mother actually developed breast cancer when she was pregnant with me. So um, she didn't choose to do any kind of treatment while she was carrying me. But when I was born, she went through, had a complete mastectomy. Now we're talking back in the 50s. So a yeah, how old was she? Uh, 50, sorry, I'm sorry, 48. When she had I Yes, yes. So oh, okay. it was pretty late in life. I think yeah. I was a bit of an accident, but I was the third of three children. And um, I only remember growing up, always being looked after by aunts, and um, never getting to know my mom really well because she was always ill. Uh, she had cobalt treatment back then, which um, made her stay in bed for days on end. So um, fast forwarding a little bit, um, that was in the 50s. And then in, then in 1978, my sister was diagnosed with cancer. My mother died actually when I was 14, which is a very impressionable age to lose your mom. And it was all very sudden. Nobody talked about cancer back then. I didn't, I didn't know what the word cancer meant. All I know is that my mom was really sick. And my dad was one of these people that just wouldn't talk about it. So there was really no discussions around the dinner table about how my mother had died. I got all my information from my older sister, Joni. Joni was 10 years older than I was. And when she got sick, she told me that it was my, it was breast cancer that was the original site and that had taken my mother's life because it had gone to ovarian cancer. Mm -hmm. So my mother, my sister just became my best friend. My mother, uh, I looked so much up to her. And when she also got sick, I, I just couldn't believe that this family could have so much bad luck. Yeah. Um, it was almost like a family curse to me. And at that time, it was like 10, 12 years later, but I was still only in my 20s. And, and I just knew there was something more working in our bodies that had to do with something medical. So uh, my sister passed away two years later. Also, my first cousin passed away, initial site breast cancer. 
brain cancer for my cousin and ovarian, then bowel cancer for my sister. So I became very much, um, I I guess, feeling that who, who's going to get this next. And then it was all the women in my family. And I really felt that I was going to develop cancer. And I became a bit of a hypochondriac for every issue, every pain, every ache I had. I always thought this has to be cancer. Yeah, understandable. Yeah. And because again, back then, nobody talked about this. Uh, Nobody told me, or at the time, there wasn't much uh, history or uh, anything to do with, with genetics. So at the age of 29, I did develop breast cancer. I actually had a complete hysterect, sorry, a complete mastectomy at that time. Hysterectomy came next. And that was in 1980. And then in 1988, I was diagnosed with third stage, almost fourth stage ovarian cancer. At which time I went through almost a year. I know, Lori, almost a year of chemotherapy treatment and still, couldn't believe how this could have no medical link to it. Because again, in 1988, there was no discovery about the BRCA gene. So uh, fast forwarding, my oncologist here in Toronto gave me a call and said that they were looking at and there had been a BRCA gene mutation discovery. And would I be interested in being tested? And I didn't have to think twice. I said, absolutely. I need to know why my family uh, suffered so greatly and I lost so many family members from from cancer. So uh, I was one of the first to be tested for the BRCA gene mutation. It was done, the testing was done here in Toronto, took almost two years to get my uh, results, but I do carry the BRCA gene mutation. And I get asked this question a lot. And that question is, what did you think when you first found out that you had the BRCA gene? And honestly, nobody I know would ever say this, but I was elated. I, I absolutely thought that this, now I could fight this. Now I had a reason behind knowing what was killing, as I said, um, most of my family, my, the males, females in my family. So I know we've come a long way. I know with companies like Mirad uh, Genetics helping, but I think we still, from a patient perspective, still have a long way to go. Um, because I still think many people think, and we're here to prove Lori that it's not the case, that when you're diagnosed with cancer, it's like a death sentence. Mm-hmm. And that's why we are advocating so much uh, for uh, patients. And um, I also had a movie made about my life called Decoding Annie Parker. Like Lori, I kept a journal. I wrote everything down. I had such chemo brain that I had to put it on paper. And it was all that uh, journal information that I had logged that brought Hollywood to me Um, and asked if uh, they would be, or I would be interested in actually having a Hollywood movie made about my life and the life of Dr. Mary Claire King. And we all know who she is. So um, I agreed to that because I didn't want one other person to suffer like I had. And uh, so we had some really big stars in the film. 
And, uh, and then I went on to write my memoirs, which is Annie Parker Decoded, which I have right here. And um, the book was written from the heart, Hollywood. It was about 80% accurate to my life. But they did tell me, producer did tell me that they had to put in some humor. They couldn't make a Hollywood movie about my life the way my life played out. Yeah, they had yeah. to add some humor to it. So that's kind of where I was at. And then I just decided to advocate even more and to leave a legacy and to help out the cancer community. I started my own foundation in 2018 called the Annie Parker Foundation. And um, yeah, that's kind of where I am today. And we're going to do our first, first virtual event on August 21st oh, called a, yeah. a second act. Yeah, oh, that's great. And, uh, and Laura, yeah. you should look into it. You'd be great yeah. at joining that event. Yeah, Shelly, put uh, um, your link in the, the Annie Parker Foundation link in the chat. I put uh, Lori's as well. Um, awesome. And uh, we have a question from Robin Palmer. Um, and uh, you know, she says, what words of wisdom do each of you have for us providers for our interactions with cancer patients, especially when the prognosis is poor? I think it's a very good question, Robin. Um, I don't know who wants to jump in first. Annie, do you want to start? Sure. Um, words of wisdom. Well, you know, I, I've always fought this disease really hard. Um, I've been asked this question a lot. I actually, survivorship to me just means supporting and comforting other people. So I think you're doing an amazing job. I've been asked by geneticists, um, genetic counselors, it's just make sure that you listen to a patient um, because everybody's body is different. Everybody's mental capacity to absorb information, as you had said, Lori, is different. Everybody handles things in a different manner. So I was the opposite, Lori. I wanted to know everything because my circumstances were very different mm -hmm. because of losing so many uh, family members. Um, I understand where you're coming from, but the more information I had, especially in regards to the genetics, um, it would help me survive and help me fight this better. I absolutely agree. And what I know now and what I've always known and believe knowledge is power and mm -hmm. finding out as much as we can in, in, with regard to the situation and working with genetic uh, certified genetic counselors or in our healthcare professionals and, and for them. And as you said, listening is so important and not assuming things and really right. taking each patient in each case individually and understanding and uh, giving them the time. I believe in, in being truthful and really not sugarcoating. We want the truth and living your life with as much quality as you can and really uh, understanding what, what the next step is and how to manage that, I believe is important. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of the, the hardest, uh, you know, things from a, a physician standpoint, uh, you know, and, and you know, many people on the line have probably had uh, some, some aspect of this in their career, but uh, sometimes you are seeing that patient that doesn't have hope, 
unfortunately, that, uh, you know, is literally uh, on their deathbed. And it is, it is a very, um, you know, it's, it's a hard situation, um, you know, and it's always, it's, I've always been surprised personally at how, uh, you know, much laughter there still is in a sense, uh, you know, and joking that'll go on sometimes in those rooms, uh, you know, with the, the family member, um, you know, and their family. It just, it's, it's it, my experience, it hasn't been as dismal uh, as, you know, you would think from the out, if you were looking in and, you know, saying you're about to walk into a room of someone that, you know, it's like, you know, maybe not going to be here in a week. Uh, kind of thing that they're, you know, just on supportive care at the end of their hospice career or whatever, you know, whatever it is. Um, but yeah, you know, that levity, I mean, you know, really, even if you don't have the hope, sometimes just that, uh, you know, just being able to, um, you know, banter and still see a reason for, um, you know, helping others is, is, you know, a big part of it. And not feeling alone either, Doc Seven, mm -hmm, like, yeah. And I think there is so much, so much more communication today than there ever was in, in my time. Um, and as you said, Lori, it's just being honest with your patient. And may I say with doctors years ago, and, and this has changed dramatically, which I'm so thankful for, doctors were up here and patients were down here. I, I always remember going into when I had my ovarian cancer and like you, Lori, told to go home and get my affairs in order. And I, I recall this doctor's, I, I felt so small because this doctor's desk, see, it, it's like the legs were cut off where the patient was sitting. I was actually looking up at this doctor and it, it just, I, I felt I wasn't on the same level at all. No pun intended, but I, I, I wasn't. I can't believe you, know? you said that because Annie, because last year in August, when I was interviewing surgeons for my endometrial cancer, one surgeon, it was, it was, he has a great reputation, excellent, but in the personal interaction, it just did not work for me. And I shared the feedback later when I selected another doctor, he wanted to know why I wasn't going with him. And part of it was really the assumption, just what you talked about physically, how we were sitting and I was looking at him and the, the attitude right away it was, well, you're a diabetic. Well, I'm not a diabetic. He said, oh yes, you are because you've had your pancreas removed. Well, that part of it, that was just the first step of a conversation that did not go well. So just the assumptions were That's right. correct and not really understanding, get, looking at all the files that I had sent. I was very, very good with record keeping and I wanted to make sure that he was informed and knew everything. But I think it's the compassion, it's the understanding, it's the listening. And for us patients to not be afraid to ask for help, that vulnerability, I learned so much about it in, in my journey. Agree. And, uh, what you said is they used to be on this pedestal, but really don't be intimidated, don't be afraid to ask. And if you need a second or a third opinion, I believe it's important to follow through, trust your instincts. We know our bodies, certainly they are the professionals, but yes. we do know what's mm -hmm. happening inside of us, not only physically, but emotionally. And as I told Dr. Slavin before, when I, uh, I've traveled around the U.S. a lot with the movie uh, before COVID, of course, and um, a lot of geneticists and, and, have, and doctors have said to me, 
thank you. This movie has taken me out of the office, has taken me out of the lab, because they are only human. And we all have good days and we all have bad days. So it's understandable, yes, that you could walk in on a, a bad day where, you know, a doctor also has <laughs> had something go wrong that particular day. But it was it, it felt very comforting to me that this film kind of brought them back to look at how patients are treated. It, so it yes, absolutely, Lori, I agree. Yeah. And who, I mean, beyond your family, um, you know, who did you both reach out to for support? Um, you know, were you, were you getting involved in support organizations or did you just not want to hear about anything else? Um, you know, what, what were you leaning on? I personally had an extraordinary experience. I, again, had never been sick and I was invited to attend at the time again, 15 years ago, the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network was having a, a seminar. And I thought, I don't wanna to go to any support group and I don't wanna be around a lot of people that are dying. It just sounded really dark and depressing to me. And that's not my personality or my outlook, even though I was diagnosed with something that could be. And after attending that and interacting with the physicians, with the scientists, with the volunteers, with the staff of PanCan, my outlook completely changed. And so for 10 years, I was asked to be on the board of directors. I was chair of the board for several years and learned so much about just the whole world of certainly pancreatic cancer, but what's needed in research and raising funding for medical research, reaching out to others, advocacy, supporting not only in the healthcare professionals, all of you, the scientists and the doctors, but the patients. It was just an incredibly powerful and enriching experience. And as a result, I now coach patients and really with the intuitive skills that I believe I possess and that the journey and walking what Annie and I can both say that we have walked this walk of, of a cancer journey navigating that I'm able to guide and help patients really empower themselves and mm -hmm. to um, really live a quality of life and I never imagined 15 years ago this would be my life now and what I'm doing but it's it's for me PanCan and some other groups have been incredibly empowering uh, educating inspiring and and have uh, equipped me with the tools that I need to to help patients as well yeah what do you what do you do right now with uh, PanCan and and that's I think how I met you many years ago I was trying mm -hmm. to think about it and I it was something related to PanCan but are you still pretty involved with them uh, somewhat. Uh, they, um, not being on the board has removed me somewhat, but I interact with a lot of the volunteers and the staff and, and the, the scientific and medical advisory mm -hmm. board as well. I'm also involved with the, um, you may know Dr. Diane Simeone, who is involved with PanCamp, but uh, is heading a uh, initiative at NYU Langone Cancer Center for uh, early detection for pancreatic cancer. And I'm on the board of Preseed, and, and that's a worldwide initiative for mm -hmm. early detection. So, and um, all of that, it's, it's uh, empowering, it's enriching, and certainly with Myriad, learning about how you all are the gold standard of genetic testing and the importance of that and demystifying what 
a genetic test is all about. And some people are fearful or they don't want the information and how important this is. And one simple test can save a life for not only that person, but generations to come is, is incredibly important. And uh, I'm so happy yeah. to be involved. With no, that. no, thank you. And what on your website, um, you know, I, I know you have a website. Do you have your own foundation as well? We put the website in the chat if people want to uh, go look for, at it. For Lori, I don't have a foundation. Annie okay. mentioned hers, and I'm happy to learn more about that. But no, I have uh, my coaching, and I love participating in different opportunities to heighten the awareness about genetic yeah. testing and let people know that there is hope through a and cancer. And some surgery. risk questionnaires, you said, on your website, too, where people, like patients can interact it, a little it, bit. Yes, yeah. absolutely. The simple mm. hereditary cancer quiz that Myriad offers, it's three simple questions, and it's easy and fast, mm -hmm. and I encourage everyone to take that. Yeah. Do you have other resources, too, uh, for patient resources on there? Yes, absolutely. Okay. If yeah. you go to my name, lauriemccaskill.com. Yeah, great. So I encourage everyone to take a look there. And, and Annie, I mean, when it came to, you know, your, your journey and leaning on uh, people, I mean, you know, you had so much cancer in your family at that time. I mean, um, you know, how, how are you getting support? Well, I was the one that felt I owed a payback. And um, I, I actually are, I'm very involved uh, with force, which Merit is too. Um, I, I just couldn't get myself out there. Uh, this is long before the movie, uh, again, because of how I suffered mentally and physically, I just had to participate in anything that I, I could like the Canadian cancer society being in Toronto, um, any, uh, helpful, any foundation that would have me that wanted to speak about my story about genetics. Um, because it, as Lori said, and as you know, I mean, this is what you do for a living, Dr. Slavin, it's, it's, it's so important to be, gen it's a personal decision. I understand that, but it is certainly a very important to look at Angelina Jolie. She's living a life now because of genetics, because of her mom. Um, she can see her grand, hopefully her grandchildren grow up and, uh, you know, I just felt right from the get-go, my life had an expiry date. And, and now, um, now that I know that I carry the BRCA gene, I can cross my T's, dot my I's, get early. I go every year. I'm still, I'm three-time cancer survivor. So of course, yes, I still go for my annual checkups. But um, I, I just reached out to all the organizations that I could. I mean, my family literally fell apart with my mother's death. Because yet again, as I said, nobody spoke about it. My, my first marriage fell apart because I was so obsessed with um, genetics and, and trying to find out why I carried this family curse. So, yeah. yeah, and I want to take a pause for a second and just uh, see if anyone has any questions out there because we have a lot of uh, listeners on. Anyone want to ask Annie or Lori any, anything in particular? not i have a million other questions but <laughs> we probably don't have time <laughs> I have one so this is shelly again um so your your desire to have information is very different from each other you know you you, you annie you wanted a lot of information Lori, you were taking it more day to day a lot of the 
individuals on this call are genetic counselors who thrive on doing active listening with patients, but also providing information. And so there's that fine balance with giving too much information that you overwhelm the patient, but yet giving them enough to feel empowered to make decisions that are right for them. And I wondered in your different journeys and your different perspectives, um, how you handled too much or not enough with a provider. Um, and did you just say, give me more, give me more, Annie? Or Lori, did you say, no, I don't wanna hear that. I know you've kind of touched upon that, but when we think about from the provider, the doctor, the genetic counselor giving that, how did you manage that so it was right for you if they were missing the clues? Lori may be able to answer that better than me, Shelley, and, and I'll tell you why, because back then, I, I didn't go through all the the protocol that you have to go through today. I never got to see a genetic counselor. I basically was told you have breast cancer at 29, you have to have a complete mastectomy. What was I supposed to do but listen to the the experts, listen to the doctors, and and absolutely that's they many don't get me wrong, doctors have saved my lives, my life many many times, but even when I had third stage ovarian, my family doctor didn't didn't put didn't connect the dots because at that point, if a few if it was a few years later, I would have seen maybe a genetic counselor, but there was no genetic counselors back then. And, and I used to go for all these symptoms that pointed directly now at ovarian yeah. cancer. But I, I didn't have anybody that I, I could um, tap into. So I know genetic counselors are doing an amazing job today. And I, I value them and I thank them for the job that they're doing. But I didn't, I didn't have that luxury. So it was um, complete arrest, arrest, sorry, hysterectomy. Um, I didn't have any choice. If you want to save your life, this is what you have to do. So I had that surgery done. And then my third cancer was um, 2005, which was a, a tumor that uh, was behind my liver. So they had to take uh, some of my liver out too. But at that point, I knew I, I had... Um, a genetic disposition. So it, um, and yet they said that my third cancer was actually um, an unknown primary. And my oncologist actually sent it to Dr. King. She wanted to see the pathology result, uh, results and it, it came back as an unknown primary. So it really wasn't connected, I don't think, to the breast and ovarian cancer. And that was in 2005. So Laurie, over to you. I'm, I'm not sure, uh, I don't mean to be evasive, Shelley, but I, I didn't have that luxury, um, unfortunately, that patients have today. And Shelley, I was never offered uh, genetic testing. It was never uh, posed to me as this is uh, something that you can do. And over the years, I might have done things differently. I do believe knowledge is power. And today I would definitely do testing. I believe in the counselors, in healthcare professionals. I think it's really important to manage and understand your patient. I realize there isn't a lot of time, 
but I hope patients will take someone with them. I hope they will ask questions and derive this information because it is powerful and it can save a life. And it doesn't have to be overwhelming. If it's presented in a way and they go to a trustworthy company like Myriad, knowing that uh, they have a lifetime commitment to their patients, they really do care and it's accurate, it's safe. All of that is very comforting. I would want to know that. And that's gonna help me make the decisions. I'm not gonna do this alone. You do not have to think you are alone in making these decisions and navigating this journey. I think that's super, super important. Ask for help and ask the questions and learn and do your homework. And for me, I, in doing my research with where I would have this surgery or what oncologist or so forth, it was only so much. I couldn't overwhelm. You could spend the next 12 months every day, as you know, Annie, right? Doing research, learning about this healthcare facility, this and this, it can be too much. Mm -hmm. So I managed it. But again, I believe that asking those questions, getting the information, don't do this alone. Knowledge is power and it can save a life. Yeah. And you know what, Laurie, it's so true, but I'm really going to age myself and date myself here. But you can imagine how obsessed I was with researching this. I had to do it in a library. What's a library today? Wow. Nobody goes to a library anymore. Wow. It's all done on, of course, online. And, and yes, yeah. So, um, yeah. Yes. No, mine's almost overwhelming now. Um, oh, yes, it can be. You're right. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, we only have a few minutes left, um, but I, you know, I don't know if there's other questions people can chime in, but you know, one kind of general lasting uh, question, I mean, you know, what lessons learned, I mean, is there any like really good tidbit that, you know, or tidbits that you would have personally loved to have known in the beginning or, you know, advice that you would have for, uh, our provider audience here, maybe taking care of patients, uh, that maybe hasn't been said in the pod or in the webinar yet. Hmm. I think I've said it all again, uh, empowerment, um, just knowing your body going and, and getting things checked out when you know things just aren't right. Um, that will give you peace of mind, um, peace of mind that I, I never got initially, uh, given the sign of the times or the way things were. So um, empowerment, um, just being an advocate, it sounds being like. an advocate. Uh, absolutely, Dr. Slevin. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Advocating for yourself. Yeah. Look at Lori. Yeah. Look at where she is today, because that's what she did. So mm -hmm. bravo to you. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, what do you, what do you, what about, uh, what say you, Lori? On that? I, I absolutely agree because being dismissed and being told this is my imagination when I'm absolutely experiencing something it mm -hmm. is not. And I want people to really, just what you said, use your voice, trust your instincts. And for the healthcare professionals, really understand all of us have different personalities and to better understand that patient, listen to understand and manage the information, how it's conveyed. And I love when you talked about humor and just trying to treat this as um, even if time is limited, really understanding what that means to that patient and, and how to manage that. And, and for the patient, uh, again, knowledge is power, take baby steps. This, this isn't going to be solved or everything is not going to uh, happen in a very, very short 
period of time, manage that and know that there is hope. Just because my statistics were not good, Annie's were not good, why can't we be in that other smaller number mm -hmm. where we are gonna survive? We can overcome this. It, it might be two steps forward, three steps back, but really think that I can, I can do this. It, it's, uh, it is doable and uh, it's a chapter in our life, not the whole story. Yeah. It's a journey. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Oh, that's great. Well, well, I can't thank you both enough. I mean, to take time out of your, you know, busy days. Um, yeah. And come on, tell your story. Um, yeah. I know you've, you've done it numerous times, but uh, you know, you still, you know, are helping people every single time you tell it, um, you know, I hope the providers listening, you know, really took, um, you know, something personal out of uh, today's webinar and uh, can't thank you enough. So I appreciate it. And I look thank forward to our past crossing. Doing. Doctor, thank, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Oh, and yeah, Laurie, yeah. let's stay in touch. I'd, I'd love to reconnect. Will. Thank yeah, you. Awesome. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, um, And yeah, so everyone, uh, definitely, uh, you know, Annie Parker Foundation, uh, take a look at uh, Laurie's uh, website, which was uh, posted in the chat. Uh, uh, there's some uh, resources there as well. And, um, and a little bit more background about her, you know, PanCan Network, uh, you know, advocacy groups. Uh, uh, many uh, links uh, throughout those. So I appreciate everyone coming on. Uh, thank you. And we will look forward to next week. Yeah.